Hello there, and welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you, and together we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's get started. Today we are starting the novella called Candide, a satirical story written by the philosopher Voltaire in 1759. The name Candide means optimism, and it plays into the satire of the whole story. I am reading from a translation by John Butt. Just a quick disclaimer before I begin. Because of the time in which this story was written, and due to its purposely dramatic nature, there are several terms and phrases used to describe humans from different walks of life that we no longer use or accept because they are demeaning and inhumane. I have left them in this telling, to keep it true to the text, but I also didn't want to leave this unaddressed. We cannot change how things were, but we can acknowledge them and learn and grow together. The language that we used and the way we talk to and about other humans matters deeply. If you would like to talk about this, there is an email in the show notes and I would be more than happy to hear from you. Let's be conscious of how we treat one another and make the world a better place for all of us together. Chapter 1. How Candide was brought up in a beautiful country house, and how he was driven away. There lived in Westphalia, at the country seat of Baron Thundertentronk, a young lad blessed by nature with the most agreeable manners. You could read his character in his face. He combined sound judgment with unaffected simplicity, and that, I suppose, was why he was called Candide. The old family servant suspected that he was the son of the baron's sister by a worthy gentleman of that neighborhood, whom the young lady would never agree to marry because he could only claim seventy-one quarterings, the rest of his family tree having suffered from the ravages of time. The baron was one of the most influential noblemen in Westphalia, for his house had a door and several windows and his hall was actually draped with tapestry. Every dog in the courtyard was pressed into service when he went hunting, and his grooms acted as whips. The village curate was his private chaplain. They all called him Your Lordship and laughed at his jokes. The baroness, whose weight of about twenty-five stone made her a person of great importance, entertained with a dignity which won her still more respect. Her daughter, Cunegonde, was a buxom girl of seventeen with a fresh, rosy complexion, altogether seductive. The baron's son was in every way worthy of his father. His tutor, Pangloss, was the recognized authority in the household on all matters of learning, and young Candide listened to his teaching with that unhesitating faith which marked his age and character. Pangloss taught metaphysico-theologio-cosmologio-nigology. He proved incontestably that there is no effect without a cause, and that in this best of all possible worlds, his lordship's country seat was the most beautiful of mansions, and her ladyship the best of all possible ladyships. It is proved, he used to say, that things cannot be other than they are, for since everything was made for a purpose, 
it follows that everything is made for the best purpose. Observe, our noses were made to carry spectacles, so we have spectacles. Legs were clearly intended for breeches, and we wear them. Stones were meant for carving and for building houses, and that is why my lord has a most beautiful house. For the greatest baron in Westphalia ought to have the noblest residence. And since pigs were made to be eaten, we eat pork all the year round. It follows that those who maintain that all is right talk nonsense. They ought to say that all is for the best. Candide listened attentively, and with implicit belief, for he found Lady Cunegonde extremely beautiful, though he never had the courage to tell her so. He decided that the height of good fortune was to have been born Baron Thunder Ten Tronk, and after that, to be Lady Cunegonde. The next was to see her every day, and failing that, was to listen to his master Pangloss, the greatest philosopher in Westphalia, and consequently the greatest in all the world. One day, Cunegonde was walking near the house in a little coppice called the Park, when she saw Dr. Pangloss behind some bushes giving a lesson in experimental physics to her mother's waiting woman, a pretty little brunette who seemed eminently teachable. Since Lady Cunegonde took a great interest in science, she watched the experiments being repeated with breathless fascination. She saw clearly the doctor's sufficient reason, and took note of cause and effect. Then, in a disturbed and thoughtful state of mind, she returned home filled with a desire for learning, and fancied that she could reason equally well with young Candide and he with her. On her way home she met Candide and blushed. Candide blushed too. Her voice was choked with emotion as she greeted him, and Candide spoke to her without knowing what he said. The following day, as they were leaving the dinner table, Cunegonde and Candide happened to meet behind a screen. Cunegonde dropped her handkerchief, and Candide picked it up. She quite innocently took his hand, and he as innocently kissed hers with singular grace and ardor. Their lips met, their eyes flashed, their knees trembled, and their hands would not keep still. Baron Thunder-Ten-Trunk, happening to pass the screen at that moment, noticed both cause and effect and drove Candide from the house with powerful kicks on the backside. Cunegonde fainted, and on recovering her senses was boxed on the ears by the Baroness. Thus, consternation reigned in the most beautiful and delightful of all possible mansions. Chapter 2 what happened to Candide amongst the Bulgars? After being turned out of this earthly paradise, Candide wandered off without thinking which way he was going. As he plodded along, he wept, glancing sometimes towards heaven, but more often in the direction of the most beautiful of houses, which contained the loveliest of barons' daughters. He lay down for the night in the furrow of a ploughed field, with snow falling in thick flakes, and, to make matters worse, he had nothing to eat. Next day, perished with cold and hunger, and without a penny in his pocket, he dragged his weary limbs to a neighbouring town called Waldbergoff Trark Dickdorf, where he stopped at an inn and cast a pathetic glance towards the door. Two men in blue noticed him. 
"'There's a well-made young fellow, chum,' said one to the other, "'and just the height we want.' They went up to Candide and politely asked him to dine with them. "'Gentlemen,' said Candide modestly, "'I deeply appreciate the honour, but I haven't enough money to pay my share.' "'People of your appearance and merit, sir, never pay anything,' said one of the men in blue. "'Aren't you five feet five inches tall?' "'Yes, gentlemen, that is my height,' said Candide with a bow. "'Very well, sir, sit down. We'll pay your share, and what's more, we shall not allow a man like you to go short of money. That's what men are for, to help each other.' "'You are quite right,' said Candide, for that is what Mr. Pangloss used to tell me.' I am convinced by your courteous behavior that all is for the best. His new companions then asked him to accept a few shillings. Candide took them gratefully and wanted to give a receipt, but his offer was brushed aside, and they all sat down to table. Are you not a devoted admirer? began one of the men in blue. Indeed I am, said Candide earnestly. I am a devoted admirer of Lady Cunegonde. "'No doubt,' replied the man, "'but what we want to know is whether you are a devoted admirer of the King of the Bulgars.' "'Good heavens, no,' said Candide. "'I've never seen him.' "'Oh, but he is the most amiable of kings, and we must drink his health.' "'By all means, gentlemen,' replied Candide, and emptied his glass. "'That's enough,' they cried. "'You are now his support and defender, and a Bulgar hero into the bargain.' Your fortune is made. Go where glory waits you. And with that, they clapped him into irons and hauled him off to the barracks. There he was taught right turn, left turn, and quick march. Slope arms and order arms, how to aim and how to fire, and was given thirty strokes of the cat. Next day, his performance on parade was a little better and he was given only twenty strokes. The following day he received a mere ten, and was thought a prodigy by his comrades. The bewildered Candide was still rather in the dark about his heroism. One fine spring morning he took it into his head to decamp, and walked straight off, thinking it a privilege common to man and beast to use his legs when he wanted. But he had not gone six miles before he was caught, bound, and thrown into a dungeon by four other six-foot heroes. At the court-martial, he was graciously permitted to choose between being flogged thirty-six times by the whole regiment, or having twelve bullets in his brain. It was useless to declare his belief in free will, and say he wanted neither. He had to make his choice. So, exercising that divine gift called liberty, he decided to run the gauntlet thirty-six times and survived two floggings. The regiment being two thousand strong, he received four thousand strokes which exposed every nerve and muscle from the nape of his neck to his backside. The course had been set for the third heat, but Candide could endure no more, and begged them to do him the kindness of beheading him instead. The favor was granted. His eyes were bandaged, and he was made to kneel down. The king of the Bulgars passed by at that moment and asked what crime the culprit had committed. Since the king was a man of great insight, he recognized from what he was told about Candide that here was a young philosopher utterly ignorant of the way of the world, and granted him a pardon. 
an exercise of mercy, which will be praised in every newspaper and in every age. Candide was cured in three weeks by a worthy surgeon with ointments originally prescribed by Dioscorides. And he had just enough skin on his feet to walk when the king of the Bulgars joined battle with the king of the Abars. Chapter 3 How Candide Escaped from the Bulgars and What Happened to Him Afterwards Those who have never seen two well-trained armies drawn up for battle can have no idea of the beauty and brilliance of the display. Bugles, fifes, oboes, drums, and salvos of artillery produced such a harmony as hell itself could not rival. The opening barrage destroyed about 6,000 men on each side. Rifle fire which followed rid this best of worlds of about nine or 10,000 villains who infested its surface. Finally, the bayonet provided sufficient reason for the death of several thousand more. The total casualties amounted to about 30,000. Candide trembled like a philosopher and hid himself as best he could during this heroic butchery. When all was over and the rival kings were celebrating their victory with te deums in their respective camps, Candide decided to find somewhere else to pursue his reasoning into cause and effect. He picked his way over piles of dead and dying and reached a neighboring village on the Abar side of the border. It was now no more than a smoking ruin, for the Bulgars had burned it to the ground in accordance with the terms of international law. Old men, crippled with wounds, watched helplessly the death rows of their butchered womenfolk, who still clasped their children to their blood-stained breasts. Girls who had satisfied the appetites of several heroes lay disemboweled in their last agonies. Others, whose bodies were badly scorched, begged to be put out of their misery. Whichever way he looked, the ground was strewn with the legs, arms, and brains of dead villagers. Candide made off as quickly as he could to another village. This was in Bulgar territory, and had been treated in the same way by Abar heroes. Candide walked through the ruins over heaps of writhing bodies and at last left the theater of war behind him. He had some food in his knapsack and his thoughts still ran upon Lady Cunegonde. His provisions were exhausted by the time he reached Holland, but as he had heard that everyone in that country was rich and all were Christians, he had no doubt that he would be treated as kindly as he had been at Castle Thundertentronk, before Lady Cunegonde's amorous glances caused his banishment. He appealed for alms from several important-looking people, who all told him that if he persisted in begging, he would be sent to a reformatory to be taught how to earn his daily bread. At last, he approached a man who had just been addressing a big audience for a whole hour on the subject of charity. The orator peered at him and said, What is your business here? Do you support the good old cause? There is no effect without a cause, replied Candide modestly. All things are necessarily connected and arranged for the best. It was my fate to be driven from Lady Cunegonde's presence and made to run the gauntlet, and now I have to beg my bread until I can earn it. Things could not have happened otherwise. 
Do you believe that the Pope is Antichrist, my friend? said the minister. I have never heard anyone say so, replied Candide. But whether he is or he isn't, I want some food. You don't deserve to eat, said the other. Be off with you, you villain, you wretch. Don't come near me again or you'll suffer for it. The minister's wife looked out of the window at that moment, and seeing a man who was not sure that the Pope was Antichrist, emptied over his head a pot full of... Well, which shows to what lengths ladies are driven by religious zeal. A man who had never been christened, a worthy Anabaptist called James, had seen the cruel and humiliating treatment of his brother man, a creature without wings but with two legs and a soul. He brought him home and washed him, gave him some bread and beer and a couple of florins and even offered to apprentice him to his business of manufacturing those Persian silks that are made in Holland. Candide almost fell at his feet. "'My tutor Pangloss was quite right!' he exclaimed. "'When he told me that all is for the best in this world of ours, for your generosity moves me much more than the harshness of that gentleman in the black gown and his wife.'" While taking a walk the next day, Candide met a beggar covered in sores. His eyes were lifeless, the end of his nose had rotted away, his mouth was all askew and his teeth were black. His voice was sepulchral, and a violent cough tormented him, at every bout of which he spat out a tooth. Chapter 4 How Candide Met His Old Tutor, Dr. Pangloss, and What Came of It Candide was moved more by compassion than by horror at the sight of this ghastly scarecrow, and gave him the two florins he had received from James, the honest Anabaptist. The apparition looked at him intently, and, with tears starting to fill his eyes, fell on the young man's neck. Candide drew back in terror. "'Does this mean,' said one wretch to the other, "'that you don't recognize your dear Pangloss any more?' Pangloss, cried Candide, can this be my beloved master in such a shocking state? What misfortune has befallen you? What has driven you from the most lovely of mansions? What has happened to Lady Cunegonde, that pearl among women, the masterpiece of nature? My breath fails me, murmured Pangloss. At this, Candide quickly led him to the Anabaptist's stable, where he made him eat some bread and as soon as he had revived, said to him, "'You mentioned Cunegonde?' "'She is dead,' replied the other. At these words Candide fainted, but his friend restored him to his senses with a little sour vinegar, which happened to be in the stable. Candide opened his eyes. "'Cunegonde is dead,' said he. "'Oh, what has become of the best of worlds? "'But what did she die of?' No doubt it was grief at seeing me sent flying from her father's lovely mansion at the point of a jackboot. No, said Pangloss. She was disemboweled by vulgar soldiers after being ravished as much as a poor woman could bear. When my lord tried to defend her, they broke his head. Her ladyship was cut into small pieces, and my poor pupil treated in precisely the same way as his sister. As for the house, not one stone was left standing on another. Not a barn was left, not a sheep, not a duck, not a tree. 
but we have been amply avenged, for the Abars did just the same in a neighboring estate which belonged to a Bulgar nobleman. At this tale, Candide fainted once more. When he recovered his senses, he first said all that was called for, and then inquired into cause and effect, and into the sufficient reason that had reduced Pangloss to such a pitiable state. I fear it is love, said his companion. Love, the comforter of humanity, the preserver of the universe, the soul of all living beings, tender, tender love. I know what this love is, said Candide, with a shake of his head. This sovereign of hearts and quintessence of our souls, my entire reward has been a kiss and twenty kicks on the backside. But how could such a beautiful cause produce so hideous an effect upon you? My dear Candide, replied Pangloss, you remember Paquette, that pretty girl who used to wait on our noble lady. In her arms I tasted the delights of paradise, and they produced these hellish torments by which you see me devoured. She was infected, and now perhaps she is dead. Paquette was given this present by a learned Franciscan, who had traced it back to its source. He had had it from an old countess, who had had it from a cavalry officer, who was indebted for it to a marchioness. She took it from her page, and he had received it from a Jesuit, who, while still a novice, had had it in direct line from one of the companions of Christopher Columbus. As for me, I shall not give it to anyone, for I am a dying man. What a strange genealogy, Pangloss, exclaimed Candide. Isn't the devil at the root of it? Certainly not, replied the great man. It is indispensable in this best of worlds. It is a necessary ingredient. For if Columbus, when visiting the West Indies, had not caught this disease, which poisons the source of generation, which frequently even hinders generation and is clearly opposed to the great end of nature, we should have neither chocolate nor cochineal. We see, too, that to this very day the disease, like religious controversy, is peculiar to us Europeans. The Turks, the Indians, the Persians, the Chinese, the Siamese, the Japanese, as yet, have no knowledge of it. But there is a sufficient reason for their experiencing it in turn in the course of a few centuries. Meanwhile, it has made remarkable progress amongst us, and most of all, in these huge armies of honest, well-trained mercenaries who decide the destinies of nations. It can safely be said that when 30,000 men are ranged against an army of equal numbers, there will be about 20,000 infected with pox on each side. I could listen to you forever, said Candide, but you must be cured. How can I be cured, said Pangloss? I haven't a penny, my dear friend, and there is not a doctor in all this wide world who will bleed you or purge you without a fee. This last remark decided Candide. He hurried to James, the charitable Anabaptist, and, falling at his feet, painted so moving a picture of the state to which his friend had been reduced, that the good man did not hesitate to take Dr. Pangloss in and had him cured at his own expense. During treatment, Pangloss lost only an eye and an ear. He still wrote well and had a perfect command of arithmetic, so the Anabaptist appointed him his accountant. Two months later, he was obliged to go to Lisbon on business and set sail on his own ship, taking the two philosophers with him. On the voyage, Pangloss explained to him how all was designed for the best. James did not share this view. 
men, he said, must have somewhat altered the course of nature, for they were not born wolves, yet they have become wolves. God did not give them twenty-four pounders or bayonets, yet they have made themselves bayonets and guns to destroy each other. In the same category I place not only bankruptcies, but the law which carries off the bankrupt's effects, so as to defraud their creditors. More examples of the indispensable, remarked the one-eyed doctor. Private misfortunes contribute to the general good, so that the more private misfortunes there are, the more we find that all is well. While he was pursuing his argument, the sky became overcast. The winds blew from the four corners of the earth, and the ship was caught in a most terrible storm in sight of the port of Lisbon. Chapter 5. Describing Tempest, Shipwreck, Earthquake, and What Happened to Dr. Pangloss, Candide, and James the Anabaptist. Half the passengers were at the last gasp of nervous and physical exhaustion from the pitching and tossing of the vessel, and were so weak that they had no strength left to realize their danger. The other half uttered cries of alarm and said their prayers, for the sails were torn, the masts were broken, and the ship was splitting. Work as they might, all were at sixes and sevens, for there was no one to take command. The Anabaptist gave what help he could in directing the ship's course, and was on the poop when a madly excited sailor struck him a violent blow which laid him at full length on the deck. The force of his blow upset the sailor's own balance, and he fell headfirst overboard. But, in falling, he was caught on a piece of the broken mast and hung dangling over the ship's side. The worthy James ran to his assistance and helped him to climb on board again. The efforts he made were so strenuous, however, that he was pitched into the sea in full view of the sailor who left him to perish without taking the slightest notice. Candide was in time to see his benefactor reappear above the surface for one moment before being swallowed up forever. He wanted to throw himself into the sea after the Anabaptist, but the great philosopher Pangloss stopped him by proving that Lisbon Harbour was made on purpose for this Anabaptist to drown there. Whilst he was proving this from his first principles, the ship split in two and all perished except Pangloss, Candide, and the brutal sailor who had been the means of drowning the honest Anabaptist. The villain swam successfully to shore, and Pangloss and Candide, clinging to a plank, were washed up after him. When they had recovered a little of their strength, they set off towards Lisbon, hoping they had just enough money in their pockets to avoid starvation after escaping the storm. Scarcely had they reached the town, and were still mourning their benefactor's death, when they felt the earth tremble beneath them. The sea boiled up in the harbour and broke the ships which lay at anchor. Whirlwinds of flame and ashes covered the streets and squares. Houses came crashing down, roofs toppled onto their foundations, and the foundations crumbled. Thirty thousand men, women, and children were crushed to death under the ruins. The sailor chuckled. Oh, there'll be something worth picking up here, he remarked with an oath. "'What can be the sufficient reason for this phenomenon?' said Pangloss. 
The day of judgment has come, cried Candide. The sailor rushed straight into the midst of the debris and risked his life searching for money. Having found some, he ran off with it to get drunk. And after sleeping off the effects of the wine, he bought the favors of the first girl of easy virtue he met amongst the ruined houses with the dead and dying all around. Pangloss pulled him by the sleeve and said, This will never do, my friend. You are not obeying the universal rule of reason. You have misjudged the occasion. Bloody hell, replied the other. I am a sailor and was born in Batavia. I have had to trample on the crucifix four times in various trips I've been to Japan. I'm not the man for your universal reason. Candide had been wounded by splinters of flying masonry and lay helpless in the road, covered with rubble. For heaven's sake, he cried to Pangloss, fetch me some wine and oil, I'm dying. This earthquake is nothing new, replied Pangloss. The town of Lima in America experienced the same shocks last year. The same causes produce the same effects. There is certainly a vein of sulfur running under the earth from Lima to Lisbon. Nothing is more likely, said Candide, but oil and wine, for pity's sake. Likely, exclaimed the philosopher. I maintain it's proved. Candide lost consciousness, and Pangloss brought him a little water from a fountain close by. The following day, while creeping amongst the ruins, they found something to eat and recruited their strength. They then set to work with the rest to relieve those inhabitants who had escaped death. Some of the citizens whom they had helped gave them as good a dinner as could be managed after such a disaster. The meal was certainly a sad affair, and the guests wept as they ate. But Pangloss consoled them with the assurance that things could not be otherwise. For all this, said he, is a manifestation of the rightness of things. Since there is a volcano at Lisbon, it could not be anywhere else. For it is impossible for things not to be where they are, because everything is for the best. A little man in black, an officer of the Inquisition, who was sitting beside Pangloss, turned to him and politely said, It appears, sir, that you do not believe in original sin. For if all is for the best, there can be no such thing as the fall of man and eternal punishment. I most humbly beg your excellency's pardon, replied Pangloss, still more politely. But I must point out that the fall of man and eternal punishment enter, of necessity, into the scheme of the best of all possible worlds. Then you don't believe in free will, sir, said the officer. Your Excellency must excuse me, said Pangloss. Free will is consistent with absolute necessity, for it was ordained that we should be free. For the will that is determined... Pangloss was in the middle of his sentence when the officer nodded to his henchman, who was pouring him out a glass of port wine. Chapter 6 How a magnificent auto da fe was staged to prevent further earthquakes, and how Candide was flogged. The University of Coimbra had pronounced that the sight of a few people ceremoniously burned alive before a slow fire was an infallible prescription for preventing earthquakes. So when the earthquake had subsided after destroying three-quarters of Lisbon, the authorities of that country could find no surer means of avoiding total ruin than by giving the people a magnificent auto-de-fe.
They therefore seized a Basque, convicted of marrying his godmother, and two Portuguese Jews who had refused to eat bacon with their chicken, and after dinner, Dr. Pangloss and his pupil Candide were arrested as well, one for speaking and the other for listening with an air of approval. Pangloss and Candide were led off separately and closeted in exceedingly cold rooms, where they suffered no inconvenience from the sun and were brought out a week later to be dressed in sacrificial cassocks and paper miters. The decorations on Candide's mitre and cassock were penitential in character, inverted flames and devils without tails or claws, but Pangloss's devils had tails and claws, and his flames were upright. They were then marched in procession, clothed in these robes, to hear a moving sermon followed by beautiful music in counterpoint. Candide was flogged in time with the anthem, the Basque and the two men who refused to eat bacon were burnt, and Pangloss was hanged, though that was not the usual practice on these occasions. The same day another earthquake occurred and caused tremendous havoc. The terrified Candide stood weltering in blood and trembling with fear and confusion. If this is the best of all possible worlds, he said to himself, what can the rest be like? Had it only been a matter of flogging, I should not have questioned it, for I have had that before from the Bulgars. But when it comes to my dear Pangloss being hanged, the greatest of philosophers, I must know the reason why. And was it part of the scheme of things that my dear Anabaptist, the best of men, should be drowned in sight of land? And Lady Cunegonde, that pearl amongst women, was it really necessary for her to be disemboweled? He had been preached at, flogged, absolved, and blessed, and was about to stagger away when an old woman accosted him and said, Pull yourself together, young man, and follow me. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. It helps other people find and enjoy the show. If you want to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes, and I'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with the next part of this wonderful story. Till next time, friends.